Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I'm your host, David Rothkopf. Happy holidays, happy Hanukkah, Merry Christmas, Uh, Whatever you're celebrating, we hope you're uh, enjoying it uh, this week. This is our last episode of the year 2019, but that also makes it the last episode of the teens of this decade. And so we thought we would take a bit of a look back, and we've got a great group to do it with us, including in West Sussex, England, Ed Luce. Hi, Ed. Uh, Good to be with you, David. And And in Cambridge, uh, Massachusetts, adding a degree of gravitas we seldom have on this podcast, Stephen Walt, professor at the Kennedy School. Hi, Steve. Hi, David. How are you? Good. And in Washington, D.C., we well, in the Washington, D.C. area, we have uh, David Sanger. Uh, hi, David. How are you? Hey, David. And somewhere near there, but I'm not exactly sure where, we have Rosa Brooks. Hi, Rosa. Hi, David. I'm out on the Maryland Eastern Shore at a property that strangely is referred to as Duck Pond, even though there's neither a pond nor any ducks. (laughs) Well, there you go. So, you know, I I asked all of you to think a little bit back uh, back on the past um, 10 years uh, because we get it's very easy to get caught up in what did Mitch McConnell say 10 minutes ago and oh, my God. Trump is saying things about windmills again, um, which he did, by the way. And I encourage everybody to go read his windmill speech. It really is something. Um, But let's put it in some perspective. Let's take a look at the past 10 years uh, at some of the biggest trends. uh, And when I say big trends, I mean trends that we think will have lasting consequences. Uh, not long trends, but 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 trends that are really changing the geopolitical scene. Uh, and let me uh, start with you, Steve. We, 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 everybody's going to get to pick one or two or three of these, but pick one, and 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 then we'll have a little discussion about them. Well, I think the the big trend that will have lasting consequences is the end, uh, the decisive end of the unipolar moment and the reemergence of a sort of lopsided multipolarity. Uh, Two big events there. One is this was really China's coming out decade uh, with the Belt and Road Initiative, uh, island building in the South China Sea, the 19th Party Congress in 2017, which cements Xi Jinping in power, and where they sort of give up the idea of a peaceful rise that will be hidden from the world as they gain power and wealth, but rather a much more assertive China. 
Um, and that's part of, of course, of a longer trend, which is the shift of economic power towards Asia. The second big trend that contributes to that was uh, Russia's recovery, not uh, as a rival superpower, but as a country that couldn't be ignored any longer, uh, whether it's through arms sales to various countries, including some American allies, uh, the intervention in Ukraine and Syria, the growing alignment with China as well, and then uh, their surprisingly effective political interference in various Western countries, including the United States. I think all of those things are going to have lasting consequences. Uh, the United States is no longer quite as unchallenged as it was, say, 15 or 20 years ago. Well, there you go. Steve's ruined it for everybody by getting it exactly right, and there's nothing left to discuss. So thanks for joining us for this podcast. <laughs> No, we'll keep going. There are probably other things that happened in the decade. Rosa, what, name something else. Oh, gosh. Well, I, I would extend what Steve said. Uh, it's not just the decline of, of, of the, this particular unipolar moment, but, but the decline of the West and sort of the liberal international order more generally, a sort of loss of faith in that. So this is, this is very much just adding a little bit more to what Steve, I think, has already saying that 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 uh, in a you know part of the story of the um, increasing uh, muscle flexing of, of China, uh, Russia, other powers is also just the story of, of loss of faith in, in a kind of liberal democratic vision of global order and indeed of governance altogether. Um, and so it's very closely linked to the story of sort of the rise of, right-wing nationalist populist movements um, and voting blocs in many countries within the West as well as outside of the West. Um, you know, I, I think that this is, this is potentially a shakeup of the global order and ideas about governance of the, of the likes that we haven't seen since uh, the Second World War era. Well, I, I guess what you're saying, and, and Ed, I, I'd be interested in whether you agree with me, is that Ed Luce's book is the most important book of the past 10 years. Yes, we, we, we absolutely, that is what I'm saying. Um, well, any, any disagreement on that, Ed? Um, violent disagreement, which I will reserve for another podcast. Um, uh, the... Um, <laughs> The, the three the three, three trends I had sort of picked out when I asked you asked us to um, first two have been dealt with uh, very well by by Rosa and Stephen uh, the first you know um, I think if you look back if you think over a decade then you really imagine that's just gone or just going you really imagine what will this decade look like to historians a generation two generations from now and I think it'll it, clearly the passing of of geopolitical center of gravity from West to East no, no, was no longer deniable um, in, in the last decade, in the teens, whatever we call them. Um, but they've dealt with that very well. Um, the second I would pick up, again, thinking through an historic lens, what, what will be the sort of key sort of human, human change in the last decade? I think it has to be the rise and predomination of surveillance capitalism. Um, there's, a really, there's a really good um, piece um, that if you've missed it, I'd urge you to find in the Irish Times by Vinton O'Toole um, this week. And he talks about the um, idea of the inside life, the inner life that we have, um, uh, that has been a, you know, a concept for um, many centuries, um, having been lost 
in the last decade. And the idea that our inner experiences, what make what is most personal to us, is something we now essentially sell, either knowingly or unknowingly, that we are commoditizing, uh, wittingly or unwittingly, our interior life is an extraordinary, dramatic change in human history. And I think we're only sort of really beginning to, we're only seeing the early stages of it. So I, I put that as the second and the third. Um, I think uh, most importantly is partly because of the first two, the shift from West to East, the decline of the West, and the rise of um, surveillance capitalism. We've been unable to address the transcendent issue of our time. And, and the last decade, it's become clear that climate change is irreversible. In 2010, you could still speak with some optimism that the worst yeah. effects of it um, were, were preventable. Now we know that's not true. We're talking about mitigation of, of the worst effects and prevention of a, a, a catastrophic event. Um, and so we are much more realistic. Perhaps we're much more pessimistic um, as well about, uh, about an issue that we know um, we're still not dealing. In fact, as a, as a sort of collective uh, species globally, we're, we're, we continue to go backwards on this surpassingly important issue. And I think the last decade has made that plain um, uh, and is no longer deniable. Well, David, I, I guess Ed has given you a chance. You could focus on the um, rise of surveillance capitalism and use it as a way to plug your last book, uh, or you could speak <laughs> about climate change and appear to be above all that kind of pettiness. Which direction yeah, are you going to go? Oh, I, I would I would never give up the opportunity for pettiness. And I wanted to thank you for <laughs> making the fourth after after you know all of the, all of the great low hanging fruit of the decade has been picked completely clean. Um, let me just we know, knew uh, we knew we could uh, count on you, David. <laughs> for something new that none of us yeah, you, you should take it as a compliment that you're being asked not. Yeah, right. Yeah, from you guys particularly, I'm, I'm, you know, uh, I'll certainly take it that way. So um, let me build on on uh, each of these, but particularly on on Steve's opening point about China and something that I think builds on the surveillance capitalism part. Um, a decade ago, we still believed that the rise of the internet was going to help spread democracy, or at least we thought it could, because as the rest of the world, and particularly parts of the authoritarian world, saw the benefits of freedom, they would work to emulate it. And we actually really con uh, conceived that that was possible during the Arab Spring. And I think what's happened during the decade is we've discovered we had that entirely wrong, that in fact, it is a much better uh, instrument for authoritarian governments, that they can use it to close down dissent better than the forces of democracy can use it to spread freedom. And uh, that's been one. I think the related issue to that, which goes to Steve's point about the end of the unipolar moment, is that in 2009, uh, the United States still fundamentally controlled most of the networks that connected the earth. This gave us a huge signals intelligence um, advantage. And it also just gave us a control of the world advantage. What's happened now is that we recognize that that was a temporary phenomenon. 
It ran from the day Alexander Graham Bell first laid undersea uh, cable to uh, about uh, the end of the last decade. And that now uh, the rise of China has been linked to their rise of dominance of the networks, or at least competing with us for the networks. And that's essentially the argument about 5G these days. It's just one example, an interesting example, but only one example of that phenomenon. So in the next decade, we're going to have to learn how to live in dirty networks. That is to say, live and try to prosper in networks that we do not control. Um, and uh, that's going to fit right into all of the other trends that I think you've heard uh, discussed concerning China and the sharing of power. So David was lamenting having to go forth, but Steve, by having to go first, you then had to listen to all these other people add things and 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 reframe what you said. And I'm just wondering, do you have a response to what they said? Before <laughs> no, I, I liked what they all had to say, uh, all good things. I particularly like Ed's point about uh, surveillance capitalism as a sort of potentially transformative uh, shift in how human beings are sort of uh, involved with each other. I wanted to sort of add two points, though. To what, that another thing that is a characteristic of this decade has been what I'll call a, the sort of revolt against elites. Um, uh, it was Michael Gove in the UK saying that we've had enough of experts. Uh, it's the Hong Kong protests. It's Me Too and Occupy Wall Street. Uh, Trumpism in some respects, although Trump is, uh, of course, a member of the elite. Uh, and some of this revolt is, of course, deserved uh, in various ways, uh, with people you know, reacting to failures by leaders. Uh, now we have authoritarian leaders you know, who, uh, who have to pretend to be populists in order to retain popular support. Um, so I think one of the things that's happened here is a sort of uh, around the world, governments having trouble figuring out how they're going to control their populations. And as David laid out very nicely, authoritarian governments are discovering that these technologies are actually giving them a real uh, advantage. The second point I'd just add to that is if I were thinking of a label for this past decade, I would call it the backlash decade, uh, where the pendulum keeps swinging one way and then swinging back the other. Obama reaches a nuclear deal with Iran. It turns into maximum pressure under Trump. Uh, the London Olympics in 2012 make England look cool. The Brexit debacle uh, makes England look reactionary. We have a climate agreement in 2015. Now we're actively heading the other way along with Brazil, uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, the Arab Spring creates this moment of hope in 2011 turning to the Arab winter, civil wars, and failed states as well. I'll just add one final thing. You know, we had the Me Too movement here, which was a great moment where we felt like women were finally going to be empowered against uh, men who misbehaved. And that's followed by the United States and the United Kingdom electing a couple of leaders with a long history of misconduct towards women. So uh, that's my, my summary label for the decade. It's the backlash like decade where as soon as you make progress in one direction, someone is waiting in the wings to reverse it. One step forward, two back. Hey, David, didn't we miss out of our long list here the rise and reaction to the deep state? I mean, this is, after all, deep state radio. Yes, but you know it goes without saying that anybody listening to this understands uh, our centrality to all of this. Um, although related to that, Rosa is, um, you know, I mean, and this first of all, you must be licking your chops. You like nothing better than, you know, 
global car wreck. And, 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 and in the past, you know, 20 minutes, we've described uh, the big developments of, 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 the, of the past 10 years being um, the end of Western, uh, you know, liberalism and the end of the world. So, the, I mean, what could be better from your perspective? Um, but 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 maybe we could drill down a little bit because you want it to get worse, huh? I, I wanted to I wanted to get a little bit more specific um, because it could be that there are things that have happened in this decade that are kind of lying dormant or did not dominate the whole decade, um, and and you know one of those is um, American democracy in crisis, not just America in decline, but the fact that as we come to the end of the decade, it is possible to make the case that the president of the United States, with the assistance of his attorney general, with the assistance of the Senate majority leader, with the assistance of two decades of changes of, of, of rules that have sort of tipped the scales in the judiciary in his favor and tipped the scales in legislatures in his favor, um, is, is essentially a man above the law, that the fundamental you know, principle on which America was founded uh, is at risk. And I just wondered if you might want to talk about that for a second. Oh, okay, if I must. Um, no, I, I think that's right. It's, I think it, this is a subset of a crisis in theories of governance that we're seeing globally, um, you know, that whatever consensus there was. And remember, it was it was not that long ago that you know, democracy was breaking out all over and democratic countries were, didn't fight each other and Freedom House and other organizations were, you know, jubilantly adding new democracies each year to their list. And we were all talking about transitions from authoritarianism to democracy and so on. Um, you know, that wasn't that long ago. Um, but, but now I think the sort of global faith in liberal democracy as a, as a viable type of governance that can deliver security and services and, and, and social goods to populations has been shaken just across the board in the U.S. Uh, uh, is just a, you know, we're, we're, we're part of that story. We're, we're not unique. It's not a uniquely American problem. It's perhaps uniquely painful and jarring for us because our, you know, in this country, our very sense of national identity is, is so centrally linked to this narrative about democracy, about the rule of law, about being a nation that is defined by that set of values and a, and a form of politics rather than defined by blood or religion uh, or any of the other uh, isms that could define a nation. Um, but, but yeah, I, I think we, we have reached a point where you know, partly, partly again, just because of all of the trends that we've already mentioned, um, uh, it it feels like it feels like things have fallen apart in a way that might be impossible to repair. Um, the faith in the idea of authority, faith in the idea of expertise. Um, there's a sort of a, a you know, to be fancy about it, a kind of an epistemological crisis of. Um, you know, how do we know what we know? Why do we think we know anything at all? And you see that in, in this sort of increasing inability of, of the right and the left to talk to each other because they're just inhabiting different universes um, with a different set of facts. 
and it's very these 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 are kind of parallel universes. They don't intersect each other, and they're 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 internally coherent, or at least sufficiently coherent to keep the people who inhabit them contented. But it's it becomes impossible for one of those universes to to ever meet, uh, much less disrupt the other in a sense. And and you know it's it's. It's hard to know whether this is a problem of scale, whether this is, in, in, you know, I, I, I don't, I don't know. I, I mean, I don't quite know what to think about all of this. And and this is a total cliche. I'll now say something optimistic, actually, um, although it is a complete cliche. Um, disruption is both extraordinarily painful and sometimes leads to the emergence of innovation. Um, and as I said, that's a complete cliche. It sounds like I work for some Silicon Valley company, um, but there, but there's some truth to it. You know, either this will kill us or this will make us better. Um, and I don't know which it is. And at this point, I feel like it's kind of 50, 50, you, you know, that, that all of the, all of the verities have been shaken up. Um, and it is entirely possible that we go down a really, really, really bad path towards totalitarianism and and or civil violence it is also possible that this is the sort of wake up call and disruption that america needed and that in 20 years things will look much different and much better aside from the whole climate change issue which we'll just put to one side for now um hopefully by then we'll colonize mars so our our next phase if if it works out will be somewhere in another planet well i look i look forward to that but um you know, I, I feel a little young again as you sort of evoke uh, Schumpeter and creative destruction, which was kind of big, you know, a decade or two ago. Um, let me ask a question. Is is Ed still there with us? Uh, I am indeed. Ah, I'm well, twisting from the ceiling. Uh, <laughs> uh, well, no, no, I just <laughs> I, I noticed an email from you saying that you had been disconnected. I don't like to reveal these things to our listeners the, of our fallibilities. But 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 I want to talk to you about our fallibilities as a kind of useful. This, this is why people don't have any faith in the experts anymore, David. No, that's true. <laughs> I, well, let it let it let it all fall on me. You guys, they should have faith in. But um, the, the uh, I, I wanted to deal with fallibilities because. I think there is a, a, a kind of a caveat that we need to offer at this point. And that is, if you got to the end of the 90s, as all of us did, um, you would be told that the big lessons of the 90s were, uh, you know, following the fall of the Soviet Union, the rise of unipolarity, uh, the, the rise of the hyperpower of the United States. Um, and, uh, and, and, and we've declared that dead. So that, 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 conclusion at the end of the 90s was perhaps wrong. At the end of the uh, the, the first decade of this century, you might say, uh, you might focus on things like um, asymmetric power and the the end of, of, of a big power world and, 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 and moving on to different natures and layers of power. And one of the things that we're saying about this decade is you've returned to a kind of uh, a great power rivalry and, and, and the rise of powers, as Steve pointed out, like China and Russia. So, you know, that there is a, a, a kind of a, a bad track record. You know, also at the end of the 90s, you would have, you know, held up your copy of Francis Fukuyama's book and said, look, the end of history, we've resolved all of our questions. 
Um, so, you know, I'm just posing that. You can get that on the remainder pile pretty easily now, right? Yeah, it's right next to my books, <laughs> I wanted to add, before you said that. But um, um, Nonsense. Nonsense, exactly. But, um, but Ed, I'm just, you know, what are the caveats that you would offer of, you know, that we, that we might, you know, what we might be missing as we assess this decade or, 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 or the surprise, you know, the twists that people might see um, when they look back on it? Um, well, I'm trying to think back, um, you know, to what I was doing at the beginning of the decade, and it was covering the Obama administration. So this time, late 2009, early 2010, um, Obama and the Democratic um, uh, Congress uh, uh, were struggling deeply to push through Obamacare. They did eventually succeed by the skin of their teeth, chiefly because of Nancy Pelosi. Um, but they were also struggling and failing to push through the cap and trade bill to deal with, with carbon emissions. Um, and then subsequently, late 2010, cap and trade and to some degree Obamacare were blamed for the massive shellacking uh, that Obama described um, the Democrats as having received, um, which then essentially paralyzed him um, uh, from doing anything serious domestically um, for the remaining six years of his of his presidency, um, so I think if we if we look back on the growing pessimism about whether American politics could function at the federal level properly in 2010, that's been borne out. Um, that that wasn't sort of you know a fashionable gothic position to take because you know I know there is this cliche talking of cliches that being pessimistic is fashionable. Um, and that the pessimist, you know, just needs to remain pessimistic and they'll be proven right eventually. Um, I, I, you know, there is that sort of riposte, there is that defense mechanism when you talk about the kinds of trends that we've been talking about um, that people have. They say, oh, well, pessimists are always going to be right at some point. You know, I, I do think, objectively speaking, the structural trends that we're talking about uh, a cause of deeply troubling, um, should be the cause of deeply troubling reflections. Um, that these are not sort of, these are not us seeing a Rorschach test in a different way to somebody else. These are objectively true and expertise uh, matters. And um, we should take these objective truths very, very seriously. Um, so what I would say is not that um, we've got it wrong and, and we, we're going to miss the upside and there's suddenly going to be, you know, um, a restoration of stable liberal democracy because we'll all come to our senses or collective IQ will rise or something. I think there are reasons why what is happening is happening. I think there were, there were people in the late 90s you know, who were reading Clash of Civilizations, not Francis Fukuyama. Um, and I think there were people in the late 90s who were arguing very strenuously with my former boss, Larry Summers, that um, self-regulation by Wall Street would lead to disaster, um, and and they were right. Um, and so, you know, I think you, you, you teed up a very good question there, David, um, about the late 90s. And in doing so, you, um, you know, I missed a simplification of what people were thinking then. But if you look back, as, as I know you, 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 you will recall, there were heated debates. The fact that the people who were correct lost those debates doesn't mean to say that those things weren't plain to see then. Totally agree with you. And um, David, as I as I turn to you, and I'm going to pose this question to all of you, so I give it you, you can give it give it some thought. 
Um, it, it does raise the question of, and, and, and I, I admit it, this is just the kind of end of year, end of decade thing that, that editors and journalists and producers like to do, but it, it helps put it in focus for people. Uh, and that is, you know, identify some of the winners or losers of the last decade. And I would say that one set, you know, just as an example that falls into this, I, I remember in the, the late 90s, I was in the, I was, during the 90s, I was in the Clinton administration and 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 Larry Summers and Bob Rubin and, and, and a group of very market-oriented people were driving the car. But throughout this whole period, there were other people like Joe Stiglitz uh, at the Council of Economic Advisors who later won the Nobel Prize or, or Robert Reich who was the labor secretary who were saying, no, 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 there's another issue here. There's the issue of inequality. There's that you know we 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 can't let everything be driven by the needs of the market. Well, as you look back on the past ten years, it's clear they were right. They've redeemed. So they're one of the winners of the decade, just to pick up on Ed's point. But uh, you know, on a on the geopolitical stage or otherwise, David, uh, give us a, a winner or two or a loser or two that you 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 might identify from the past ten years. Well, as you could tell from the beginning of the conversation, China was a big winner of the last decade, uh, in part because they broke themselves free of communist ideology and used some of the capitalist um, uh, and market-oriented uh, philosophies, so they wouldn't call them that, in order to raise a huge number of people out of poverty. So I think the big question in the decade forward is, can they manage this as well? And Hong Kong would suggest to you that they're really having a hard time doing that. Um, Russia, I would call um, a, a significant winner. Uh, there's a great piece, which if uh, you haven't read it yet on the Times uh, website, my colleague Andrew Higgins wrote, this is actually the 20th year, uh, end of, end of uh, 2019, of Putin's effective rule over, over Russia. And the big question is, how do you take a country with an economy smaller than Italy's and actually play a weak hand so well? And in fact, authoritarians in general have played their hand pretty well. Putin, Kim Jong-un for sure. I mean, poorest country around actually managed to go uh, not only get his nuclear arsenal, but get the president of the United States to go meet with him three times. Nobody, I think, would have guessed that uh, 10 years ago. Um, uh, it has not been uh, a great decade for Iran. And um, it's an interesting question about what it is in their makeup that has made both the um, creation of a deal with their greatest adversary and it's the dissolution of that deal both be bad moments for them. And I think we'll spend a, a fair bit of time on that. The beginning of the decade, it was a great time for the social media companies. It looked like Facebook and uh, its ilk would rule the world. Uh, we are now at a period of time where the tech lash has really made us question that in a way that I think was inconceivable 10 years ago. And then just back to Rose's question, you know, if we all knew whether or not Trumpism 
uh, and all that it represents is just going to be viewed as a four-year or maybe even an eight-year blip in the United States, or whether it's going to be a fundamental reordering of, uh, of the way the nation thinks about itself, this would be a very different conversation. And it's a very hard thing to call right now. And I think, you know, demogra- we look at demographics and we say it's a world that looks more like Barack Obama's world. And then you look at the electoral map and you say, not so fast. Um, well, thank you for that. And uh, I wish you happy holidays. I know you're about to tiptoe away on tiny cat's feet or your tiny yes, feet something uh, like that. For, to go d- do something else. But we will continue on here and we'll we'll see you in the new year, uh, but, David. But a, a joy a joy of the year has been our uh, connecting with your, your deep state audience, uh, which uh, always has the most interesting um tweets on our commentary of anything I read on anything I write. Well, you're very nice to say so. I know they appreciate it. And given that they're on the deep state, they enjoy listening to you, uh, not just on this podcast, but in your daily life on the various appliances in your home. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, uh, Steve, uh, just picking up on the winners and losers, David's picked a bunch of them. on the geopolitical stage, of course, there are many, and 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 here in the U.S., perhaps you have a couple more you can add. Yeah, well, I would say it's been a good decade for demagogues, uh, you know, and not just uh, the one we have currently in the White House, but uh, you know, Bolsonaro in Brazil, Duterte in the Philippines, Erdogan in Turkey. Uh, let's not forget that this is the decade in which Bashar al-Assad won the Syrian civil war at a frightful uh, human cost. Uh, Mohammed bin Salman in Saudi Arabia, you know, you could probably throw in Bibi Netanyahu uh, there. And these are all people who've uh, gone a long way by exploiting identity politics, uh, a sort of us versus them, that there's uh, an enemy out there that hates us and we're uh, united uh, against them. And this gets me back to where I wanted to comment on Rose's earlier point about the state of American democracy. You know, I think there's a tendency for people like us to sit there and say what defines America is a rule of law, a set of constitutional principles, something that is uh, that is sort of race, creed, et cetera, blind. Uh, but that's not the way uh, some Americans define it. They define the country not uh, in constitutional principles, but in terms of, I think, the identity of a group. Uh, you know, sort of older white Americans who think that they stand for the real America, and they see Donald Trump for all of his enormous character flaws as the one politician who's really standing up for their definition uh, of America as well. Uh, And then finally, this has been a great decade for people in the 1%, and that's what's triggering some of the backlash I referred to um, uh, earlier. Just as a thought experiment, just ask, you know, if, if half of these problems that we're constantly worrying about now would be as severe if uh, the benefits of economic growth over the past 10 years had been more widely distributed. If it had not gone uh, you know, to basically the lower classes in Asia and upper classes in the West, but some of that had actually managed to land on the lower middle and middle classes here in the United States. I think you'd be talking about a rather different politics now. Uh, and that you know, means uh, maybe you know, Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders are onto something. Uh, whether or not they, uh, whether or not that's enough to get them to the White House. Well, we we shall see, and we can save that for the the next decade retrospective, I guess. Ed, winners and losers. 
Winners and losers. Um, oh, well, Prince Silicon Valley, huge winners, um, particularly the, the owners of social media companies. Um, I think more generally, picking up a little bit from what Stephen's just said, uh, billionaires, just massive, global plutocrats in general, massive decade of, uh, of making out like bandits. Um, and of course, the decade began in the sort of wake, in the immediate aftermath of the 08 crisis, where they, they were temporarily hit. Um, statistically speaking, more than everyone else, although in reality, everyone else felt it a great deal more, but, but statistically, because so much of the, um, the wealthy, um, uh, of their wealth is, is owned in assets, the hit for asset prices, the stock prices in particular, um, uh, meant that 2009 was the worst year to be a plutocrat, technically speaking, for, for many, many years. But um, the, the decade since has been an absolute bonanza. Um, so billionaires um, um, and, and the very wealthy have, have definitely been um, winners. Um, I think um, I think it's been a, a field day for egotism uh, in, in all sort of levels. I don't just I, I don't just mean I don't just mean in politics. I mean it's it's the decade of the selfie. It's the decade decade of me. It's the decade of I am the most fascinating thing there is, and I'm just going to split it on all of you. Wait, wait a second. Are, are you are you saying also? I'm talking there? about myself, of course. No, no, I, know, I, I am deeply interesting. I was going to move on to me in particular in a second, David. No, no. Well, we're devoting it. a whole new series of podcasts to you, Ed. But what I was saying was, is is podcasting <laughs> is podcasting part of the problem there? That everybody can have their no, own not, show? No, not remotely. No, 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 no. Podcasting. No, it, it, so, if, if we're going to talk about some of the good things that have happened in the last decade. Well, let, let me um, sort of cut short that point about um, the sort of the, the collapsing of social and etiquette guardrails that contains the ego, because that's, you know, that is an important point. And, and move on to one of the plus points, which is related to, you know, to my profession, journalism. A decade ago, everybody was um, predicting the funeral of journalism. Um, and of long-form journalism in particular. And actually, arguably, a bit like, you know, a bit like we lived through the golden age of TV series or streaming um, series um, on our screens. We're living through a golden age of long-form journalism. Um, and it's not just that there are more outlets um, for longer pieces, many of which are exceptionally good, some of which are crap, but many of which are exceptionally good. Um, it's that they don't go away. You can find them forever, um, and so if if you want if you want to uh, if you want to learn, there's never been a better time to learn. I was reading somewhere that in 2001 was the first year um, where the entire output of the internet in 2001 um, exceeded all of the previous written output in human history, and 2002 was double 2001. So none of us are going to have the time to, to read this stuff. Um, but the death, the death of thoughtful, investigative, long-form writing um, was uh, was very premature. But the prediction of it was very premature. So that's you know that is a winner and that is a positive story of the last decade. But but I do think the the decade of rapacious egotism should not be overlooked. It's a point for another podcast, perhaps. Yes. Well, no no question about it, and I feel very qualified to moderate that podcast. Um, <laughs> Uh, uh, Rosa, and then I'm going to go to Steve for the last word on this, but I, both of you um, teach classes. 
Um, and uh, we've listed a lot of the things that have gone on in this decade. We've had the rise of China. We've had uh, boom times for ethno-nationalism and for demagogues, the rise of big tech companies. And at the end of this decade, we're now seeing a backlash against those tech companies, the rise of surveillance capitalism. Um, uh, and, you know, we've skipped over some things, um, you know, breakthroughs in biotechnology, people living longer, uh, net overall well-being of, of people economically improving, even though hugely disproportionate part of it goes to a very, very few people. But I'm going to give you and Steve each a chance to grade the last decade. You first, Rosie. Oh, goodness. Um, I, I, I don't approve of grading as a, as a professor. Uh, I think we should give up on the whole concept. But um, I, I wouldn't rate this decade all that highly if I had to. It's not really one of the better ones. Um, um, I, I was I was preparing for your winners and losers question, and I was yes. thinking. I mean, this 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 kind of goes without saying because uh, it's the the flip side of, of many of the winners that others have talked about. Um, it's been great for the one percent. It's been a pretty crappy decade for most other groups. Um, the the poor have gotten even more screwed in terms of the sort of continued dismantling in the United States of the social safety net, um, uh, the healthcare outcomes and life expectancy in the United States are going down. Um, uh, and in particular, I'm, I'm sure many of our listeners saw the recent reports just a couple of weeks ago about the rising death rates amongst middle-aged Americans cutting across all, all racial groups, et cetera both genders. Um, so, so after a long period in which health outcomes, healthiness generally and life expectancy were, were uh, all pos trending positively, that has really been reversed in this last decade for all kinds of reasons, many of which have to do with, with poverty, uh, lack of access to health services, um, opioids, obesity, you name it. Um, uh, even when it comes to what you might call the, the upper middle class, um, as opposed to the super rich, um, uh, it has not been a great time. And I, and I think, I think the level of sort of fear of class slippage resulting from these seismic changes to the economy that make people feel like jobs are disappearing, the rise of the, the gig economy, um, that has caused so much anxiety in the upper middle classes that you get all these kind of weird cultural distortions of helicopter parenting and, and all sorts of crazy stuff that all are very much have to do with, with the, the, the sense that things are not going to be better for the next generation, that, that there's a severe danger of sort of class slippage. Um, you know, that the, the 1% is kind of soaring away from everybody else and that if you can't somehow catapult yourself to that, that you're going to sink rapidly down to the bottom. Um, it's been a good day. I was thinking the only, the only group I can think of that's been a really good decade in the United States is, is pets. We really love pets. We're spending more money on them. We're much nicer to them. Uh, we have fewer shelters that are killing them. It's a good, been a great decade to be a dog in America. Uh, to be a human, not so much. Having just picked up the ridiculous number of toys our dog has, 
I, I have to agree with you. I, I think, in fact, there is a, we're living in an ec, ec, a decade of dog excess. Um, Steve, last word. You don't have and to agree. They, they're all somehow connected, but I don't know how. Yeah, no, no question about that. Uh, the, so last word, Steve. Um, uh, doesn't have to be a grade, but what's your verdict on the decade? Well, it would be a little bit like the report cards I used to get in elementary school. Where they would say, you know, some potential here, but not being fulfilled. Uh, needs to improve. Not doing your homework needs to pay much more attention to basic facts, much more attention to detail. And by the way, uh, the student is increasingly disruptive in class and uh, needs to behave better. That would be kind of my overall grade for the decade. Um, but I wanted to end it by, by pointing out just one thing we haven't mentioned, which is the sort of stubborn persistence of the status quo, despite all of the turbulence we've talked about at some length. You know, despite uh, lots of strains, NATO is still intact. The United States actually has more troops in Europe now than it did when Trump became president. We've had all these disruptive trade wars, but the new trade agreements that keep emerging from them are rather modest changes. The United States is still in Afghanistan. We still can't get out of there. Uh, uh, North Korea didn't disarm, didn't reform. Uh, surprise, surprise there as well. Uh, Russia is still facing sanctions. Uh, most global institutions, although they are fraying at the margins, are still in existence. And to go back to a point Ed made earlier, you know, Obamacare is still intact as well. So in a, in a sense, despite all of the things I think we are rightly worried about, and for me, the potential for really remarkable uh, climatic changes as the most significant, for all of those other changes, you know, the, the order that existed before things started to fall apart has proven to be more resilient than I think people had suggested. And uh, in that, there may be hope uh, for the future. Uh, but I'll keep my fingers crossed on that. Well, good to end on an optimistic note, given the nature of the preceding 45 minutes of conversation. Uh, and also, I think all of you out there are listening, many of you who are students, uh, who listen to uh, Steve describe his report card growing up and uh, then realize that he's now ended up as a uh, long-term professor at Harvard University, suggests that your report card really isn't that important. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, there's hope for all of you. And, and you know, why not end the year on that note? Uh, we wish all of you happy holidays, happy Hanukkah. I know uh, Donald Trump has made it safe to say Merry Christmas in America. Give then God bless Donald Trump for that and nothing else. Um, and uh, uh, let us uh, hope that uh, 2020 um, is a better year and brings some of the changes that uh, seem to be required based on the, the foregoing discussion and hope that the decade ahead also does the same and we look back on it and at the end of the decade, uh, Rosa can give it a much better grade. Uh, uh, Steve can give it a, a much uh, more enthusiastic thumbs up, but don't wait till the end of the decade uh, to tune in to Deep State Radio. We'll be back just after the beginning of the year, and we will resume with uh, this podcast, with the other podcasts we do, with some new podcasts, and also with some live events you'll want to attend um, uh, that uh, we think are very exciting, and we look forward to announcing right after the beginning of the year. Until then, Happy New Year, everybody. Bye-bye.